All these plays you are viewing, all these TV specials, and all these movies, and many more, I produced. I'm Julian Schlossberg. You may not know what a producer is, but every project in show business has a producer. Every movie, every play, every TV show, every song. So what does a producer do? Well, a real producer finds the project, hires the director, raises the money, is involved in the casting, and in charge of the ad campaign, the publicity, and the marketing. I produced for Matthew Broderick, Mike Nichols, Elaine May, Alan Arkin, Sid Caesar, Richard Dreyfus, Peter Falk, Woody Allen, Vanessa Redgrave, and Orson Welles. And in my book, Try Not to Hold It Against Me, A Producer's Life, I describe the pain, the frustration, and the joy of producing. Well, how did I, a taxi driver from the Bronx, wind up a producer? I grew up at a time that will never come again. As a boy, it was the radio that fueled my imagination. Then the advent of early television that so excited me. And the movies with kids' prices at 14 cents. You know, it's possible that listening to all those radio shows is what led me to hosting my own radio program for nine years. And listening to all that music being broadcast led me to co-own a record company. And weekly trips to the movies led me to become the youngest head film buyer ever for a national theater chain. Then starting my own company, Castle Hill Productions, which became one of the largest independent film companies in the United States. And next, being hired to head the largest movie studio in the world. I also write about testifying against the Beatles, whom I loved experiencing the paranormal with Shirley MacLaine and Betty Hill, and having strange negotiations with Al Pacino and Burt Reynolds. Sometimes it was fun, sometimes sad, but almost always memorable. I produced so far over 60 movies, plays, and TV specials, and then finally wrote this book. I hope that for anyone interested in show business, the secrets revealed in Try Not to Hold It Against Me will surprise and entertain and will not be held against me. And here he is, Julian Schlossberg. And I'm telling you, this book is amazing. And what a great promo uh, that you've put together for this. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a very interesting experience, Richard. I mean, uh, I've, I've always been on your side of the camera, you know, uh, always doing the interviewer, not the interviewee. So I've spent a lot of time lately uh, talking about the book, and uh, I've, I'm, I'm ready to rest now. <laughs> not well uh, the book is going to be a bestseller i know that or if it's not oh, already uh, and uh, it, it's it's just a page turner you can't put it down and there's so many aspects we're going to have steve gutenberg on a little later in the show and you've been working with him and i know what it takes to put a one person show on stage but here you are telling your story uh in this book and i want to begin by asking you growing up did you keep journals because you're Recall is absolutely amazing. No, the interesting thing is I didn't keep any journal till I was in my 20s. Uh, uh, and I have been very blessed 
with a, a, a pretty good memory of, of, and, and to be able to retain. And so uh, it was probably one of the reasons I got through school because I wasn't particularly interested a lot of the uh, of going to classes. I found in New York City the uh, the stairwells were gray, the the teachers were gray, the the uh, the blackboard was kind of black and gray, and I was blue. And years later, I, I read that when you got the opportunity to go and teach yourself, that uh, it was almost like, uh, you know, this Pavlovian moment for you, uh, where as you were going into the school, all of those feelings that you felt as a kid in school all came flushing back to you. It's exactly right. You, uh, you're right. I couldn't believe it. that I, All of a sudden, I perked up and said, wait a second, you're the teacher. You don't have to feel this way. You can feel okay. Yeah, it was a strange thing. Uh, but the but the memory, the ability to uh, retain, was was helpful. I had a very resentful college roommate who would sit me down. We were in the same class, and I'd say before the final, "Tell me everything about this class," and then <laughs> I'd go in and I'd get a higher mark than he would. <laughs> So he stopped doing that for me. <laughs> Julian, I want to ask you, what was the impetus for you to sit down and write this book? COVID. COVID was the only reason. I was in the middle of many projects, Richard. And uh, the last thing I wanted to do was stop, but I felt I had to. Um, and so I said, well, people have, for over the years, I'm sure they've said it to you because of your vast background. I'd you know, say to you, you know, oh, you ought to write a book, you always write a book. And I would say, yeah, right, right. And in one ear and out the other. Well, there I was sitting around, <laughs> not much to do. I said, well, let me write a chapter. I'll just write a chapter because I like yourself, because I've, I've now watched a couple of shows of yours. Uh, I'm a storyteller. Mm-hmm. We, we both know how to tell stories. And so maybe we're not great writers or I'm not, but I can tell a story. So I just told this first story and read it to my wife. And by the fifth or sixth, she was asking. She had a white flag. Please, no more. No more. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, I don't want to start off on an argument, uh, but I'm going to start off on an argument. You're a great writer. Well, thank you very much. So, thank uh, you. But, uh, you know, as you're saying this, it reminds me of when you were a small child, one thing that you and I have in common. I asked for, you know, a photograph. We saw a couple of photographs there as, as a small child, uh, but I love this photo. Uh, oh. And I asked for a photo because, and we get a, a glimpse in your book. Uh, one of the things that I used to do, and I talk about this in my own show, is uh, I would get up and I would perform any chance that I got the opportunity. <laughs> and I love the description for your grandmother, where you would get up and you would perform all the songs that you'd heard on the radio. Um, and uh, I think, you're, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but your grandmother must have been your first real critic that you were trying to keep her attention before she got up and left the room. Well, yeah. I, the thing about my grandmother was that she lived uh, with two uh, uh, widows uh, in Washington Heights in New York. And so I would go there once a week and she'd take me to the automat and take me to a movie. But she didn't want to hear the shows anymore because she heard it during the week. So on the weekend when I went over there, the two spinsters would be clapping and applauding. Well, they weren't spinsters. They were widows. And uh, she'd say, I'll see you after the show. 
Well, one of the things that she did do for you uh, was give you this love of the movies where she lived. There were three movie theaters uh, and you were constantly going to the movies. It's true, especially in the summer because we had no air conditioning. Yes. None of us, we all grew up without that. So to go to the movies and not and not only go, but to be cool. I mean, it was great. Uh, I had eight movie theaters within the block in 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 a few block radius. It was unbelievable, and they were palaces. They weren't just little movie theaters the way they are now. I mean, the the Lowe's Paradise in the Bronx was. Well, like paradise, you there were clouds, there were stars, there were clouds moving, marble staircases, and those huge curtains, Richard, as they went up and teasingly and tauntingly, and oh my God, it was you were we had no chance, many of us. You just got hooked real young. Well, when you were going to the movies, did you pretty much make a decision as to what movies you wanted to see, or was this something that your grandmother said, let's go and see this film? Oh, it was always what I wanted to see, always. And there were double features, and there was uh, uh, westerns with uh, uh, Gene Autry and, and Roy Rogers, and then there were cartoons and coming attractions. And, oh, my golly, it was you, – you would go in in daytime and come out at night. You know, you just sat there with your tuna sandwich probably smelling up the poor theater and uh, ate your sandwiches there. It was a, a totally different world. Uh, that I write about. And it's a world that I feel a lot of people are missing. You know, there are great things about technology and none of us should be a, say it's terrible, but there are a lot of losses. I mean, I grew up on radio mm-hmm. and with radio, you had to have an imagination. That's right, right. You know, now it's spoon fed to your computers and iPhones and television, but in those days, you're on the range with the Lone Ranger. I mean, you're walking down these steps to Jack Benny's vault uh, on radio. It was a great, great provider of imagination, of which I'm very grateful um, that I had. One of my favorite movies is Radio Days, Woody Allen's film, because it, it captures what the excitement was of sitting there. I, there. One of the funniest moments in the film is when they're all sitting there uh, listening to Charlie McCarthy. And then someone says, how do you know if his lips are moving? <laughs> because they were all, it was all the imagination. But you mentioned in the book, you know, and this happened for a lot of kids, uh, that a pivotal moment happened was when you and your grandmother went to see Bambi. And it's how true. it affected you. Oh, my God. I mean, I was inconsolable when they when the hunter shot Bambi's mother Whoa, to this day, I'm wondering what Walt Disney was thinking when he put that in there. But yeah, that they, my grandmother had to take me out of, I couldn't stop crying. Um, In fact, I'm still crying about it. Well, one of the great things that you had going for you as a kid and where you were was uh, the Kingsbridge Armory because there were so many major events that were happening there. I was surprised to read rodeos and car shows and uh, celebrities coming there. I mean, this was long before events like Comic-Con or something, but to have like Buster Crab uh, come and for you to encounter meeting these people that you had seen on the screen must have been, you know, mind-boggling for you. It, it, it was. It was overwhelming. The idea, this was the largest, or they said, the largest armory in the world. It was gigantic. 
And in it were boat shows, car shows, way before the Javits Center and the Coliseum was built. This was where they all went. And as a kid, to see, as you said, you said it exactly right. You go see Buster Crabbe is one thing, you know, in Flash Gordon or on a horse, but there he is. Except, Richard, he had a lot of rouge on. And I said, well, I forgot the hell, the hell with it. I just thought, what the heck? It's still Buster Crabbe. Well, you know, again, reading your book, one of the things that I really love, and we get a sense of this, is your entrepreneurial um, mindset at such an early age, uh, you know, and creating jobs for yourself uh, when you couldn't find other jobs. Uh, it's all in the book, everyone. You can't put it down. Uh, but what was that pivotal moment for you when you decided, I have to be a part of this world? I, 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 you know, I think it was just always, I probably the pivotal moment, that's a good question. Probably the pivotal moment was when a television came into our house. You know, it was one thing to stagger over to the armory <laughs> or go to a movie theater, but it was in your house. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to go anywhere. You could just turn something on and there's were movies and sports shows and entertainment variety shows. I just knew I had to be part of that. I didn't know what part, but I knew I had to be part. Had I really known more, I wouldn't have probably, I would have thought twice. But, you know, when you're young, you kind of feel you can do almost anything. Uh, well, I remember when we got our first color television set. That was a biggie. My grandparents uh, had a color set before we did. And all the neighbors would congregate to go and yeah. see color television. It was, you know, people can't, that are too young to know what that world was like. It's true. And I, I, I like to teach and I go around teaching and it's hard to explain to kids that there was no such thing as a remote. No. You had to get off your backside and change the channel. <laughs> you know, you just didn't, uh, you just didn't have a remote any more than, what a pay telephone booth must mean to people now. <laughs> well, I want to talk about several aspects of your book before we bring Steve on. Uh, but I want to talk, uh, first of all, about the title. Uh, who came up with the title? Was it your idea? And uh, why this title? Well, I worked, you know, as a producer, you work with an awful lot of people. And I worked with a lot of controversial people, people that I admired, but people who certainly had, let's say, quote, mixed reputations in the society. One was the great writer, I mean, great, well, writer, director, producer, Elia Kazan, who uh, did won Academy Awards and Tonys and was one of the great, I mean, the first man to direct the original Death of a Salesman, the original Streetcar Named Desire, discovered Brando, James Dean, Eva Marie Saint, it goes on and on. But he named names during the McCarthy period. And therefore, uh, he wasn't the only one. That doesn't make it right. But uh, he was the only one who said, I'm, I'm doing it and I'm glad I'm doing it. I hate communism, whatever it might be. Um, but as you probably know, whether it was Clifford Odets or Bud Schulberg or Lee J. Cobb or Larry Parks or, or Sterling Hayden, these all named names. They, they did. So he was one. I also represented a man named Alan Klein, who was the manager of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Again, a controversial figure. Uh, I've produced all of Woody Allen's plays. Again, a controversial figure. 
So it uh, doesn't change. the. T- I don't think anyone, even if they don't like these people, can deny their talent That's right. and their abilities, but certainly they're controversial. But what happened was I wanted Burt Reynolds to come to Broadway. I was doing a play called Sly Fox, written by Larry Gelbart, and I wanted, to, I wanted him to star in it. He, ha- he had never played Broadway, uh, at least as a, a leading man. Maybe he was in a chorus. I don't know that. But he had never been on Broadway. He had his own theater in Jupiter, Florida. And I called him, and I said, uh, I didn't know him at all. And I left a message. Uh, he didn't answer. I said, my name is Julian Schlossberg, Bert. I'm a New York City producer. Try not to hold it against me. And <laughs> so my agent, actually, uh, all my friends have had an agent. I never had an agent. I love saying it now. I have an agent. But anyhow, my agent said, that's a great title. I said, oh, my God, you're right. That is a great title. And that's how it came to pass. Yeah. Well, as you're sitting down to tell your story, and I love the way you've divided it with the chapters, it's like each story is an entity into itself. And of course, they create the fabric of your life. Uh, how do you decide what you are going to tell and what you're not going to tell? That's a that's a, a damn good question as well. Uh, I don't know. I, I think I tried to tell what I thought would interest other people, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um or at least if I found it interesting. Uh, but uh, I was very lucky. A, a wonderful writer, director, actress, Elaine May, is a very close friend. And for years I represent and still do Mike Nichols and Elaine May on their CDs and their film clips. And I would read stuff to her and she'd say, take that out. You don't need that. Forget that story. <laughs> so that was a, another help. She was able to uh, kind of... and as did Marlo Thomas and, and friends who, over the years, uh, we've stayed close, and uh, that helped. What I found, Richard, was doing interview shows that I had left out a lot. I was surprised. I thought I had you know, done what I wanted to do, and the, the, and, and the uh, pandemic continued, so I just finished the second book. <laughs> oh, I was going to ask if there was going to be a sequel. I yeah. want to get back to Elaine May for a moment, because first of all, the introduction that she writes in the book is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and as I'm reading this, as it's unfolding, uh, my mind is going, why did he choose her to write the introduction? And then she gives it to us right at the very end. Everyone buy the book to find out what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, but did you just give her carte blanche to write whatever she wanted? Oh, you, you, even if you don't, she's getting carte blanche. <laughs> whether, whether I gave it or not. <laughs> not only that, but she said you can use it. Not a word gets changed. <laughs> and that was fair. I mean, to me, I was so thrilled that she doesn't go public like this and she turns down all interviews and whatever. And so... Uh, which We're, is the biggest appointment, Elaine, if you're watching. So, well, she's going to come uh, on November, on September 18th. I'm going to be at the National Arts Club in Manhattan, and uh, she's going to interview me there. So that's going to wow. be quite an evening. And um, my friend has to be there. That's that's great. Oh, yeah. And I hope you'll be able to come. I, I hope you'll so. be able that's to. Come. Wonderful. Uh, uh, what did you learn about yourself from writing this book? Well, I guess I what I learned was that <clears throat> I kept going. I was I I didn't let defeat stop me. That I uh, 
also that I did as many projects as I did. I really didn't realize it. It's not about kicking the sand or kicking the dirt and saying, oh, really? I didn't. I, I didn't know that much, that I had done as many things until I started realizing that I had. Not necessarily good things, but I, at least I did a lot of them. That's Yeah, because to have produced over 60 television specials, movies, and theater, that's a lot, as we both know. But, you know, what was interesting was, as I said on the second book, which is interesting to me, by the way, I'm going to call it the second, I'm going to call it my first book, part two. <laughs> well, do you know the Desi Arnaz story that when he wrote his book, yeah. he called it a book? <laughs> and they said, why are you calling it a book? He said, that's what it is. It's a book. That's <laughs> a book, yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, I guess what you, yes, I think I learned that I, I, you have to have, as you know, the hide of a rhino to stay in show business for all the years we both have. Because no matter who you are, I don't care who you are, you're going to have rejection. You're going to be lied to. You're going to be hurt. Um, you can be that in life as well. It doesn't have to be show business, but mm -hmm. somehow show business seems to be able to do that better than most. On it a lot more. I agree with yeah. that. And in a way, you're warned because it's a business of show, of show. It says it. It 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 doesn't lie to you. It's right up there and up front. So yeah, I mean, it was it. It's I. I'm very interested. I I became interested in writing, and that's why I just kept doing it. Um, but I found uh, the early years were so different from now. You know, I read somewhere, which I still find hard to believe, Richard, that the majority of the United States is rural and suburbs. Majority. Now, if that's the case, they have no idea what it is to walk into a delicatessen, to walk into a bakery. It's all in shopping centers. And and you got to get into a car to do so. So I kind of write about that, those years where you didn't have to do that, where you could walk up literally a block or two and everything was at your fingertips. And I, I find that a more romantic time I than do. now. Yeah. But as you're looking back over everything and sitting down and writing this book, um, the business has changed a lot since you first uh, stepped through that door. What are the things about the business that you really love that are in place today? And what are the things that you miss that were in place when you first started? Well, I think what I miss in place was that you could do, there were so many things you could possibly do without having to go through layers of either people or security or whatever. I mean, the idea that you can't walk into a building without showing identification in itself is so peculiar to me. I mean, here, here I write about scenes, Frank Sinatra walking right in. I, they don't know who I am. Nobody stops me. He's in a television show called The Hollywood Palace, mm -hmm. and it's on ABC, except he's in New York, not Hollywood, and he's shooting at NBC. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> and I'm able to walk in, stand next to a camera, and no one says, who the hell are you, and why are you here? So that kind of thing is gone. Um, I think the other thing is that it's hard to, you know, it's very hard to try uh, out the way we could do in a way. You, it's right. hard now, uh, the good part of it is you can become, I guess, 
you know, you can go viral, so to speak, real quick. You can have, in many cases, limited talent and be very, very uh, popular and maybe make a lot of money. In the days we grew up, you had to have talent. Talent, you, you could have a lot of other things, a lot of other baggage, but you needed talent. You don't need, in many cases, talent today. You just don't. So, Well, a few years ago, and I'm not going to mention the actress's name, but there was an actress who had uh, shot to fame uh, from one of the reality television shows. She goes to Broadway, and she's missing more performances than she's doing uh, because she did not have the stamina or the discipline to do eight shows a week. There are certain things that you learn in this business, uh, and it's the road of hard knocks most of the time, that help you in terms of getting to where you need to go and sustaining a career. And as I, again, looking at your book, it seems like there were a lot of yeses in your life, Uh, either whether you gave the yes or whether someone else said yes to you. Do you feel that that's gotten harder as time has gone on? Oh, yes, I do. Uh, speaking of yes, is yes, the answer is yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's such a different change, Richard, that uh, I remember, though, I, I'm afraid every generation goes through this. I remember I, I would come home and listen to rock and roll, and my father would say, you love Sinatra, you love Ella Fitzgerald, you love Nat King Cole. How can you like that music? So I guess it's kind of a thing that perpetuates itself, that every generation looks back and says it was much better in my time. I do remember going to sleepaway camp for a couple of years. And one year, the second or third year I was there, somebody said, oh, it was much better last year. And I said, no, it wasn't. I was here. It wasn't (laughs) better last year. You know, there's a great story that Time Daily tells that when she was a young girl, her father took her to see James Earl Jones and the Great White Hope. And uh, she that was the moment for her where she said, I have to be in this business. And they go backstage and she is like fawning all over James Earl Jones. And he said, you should have been here last night. It was a much better performance. <laughs> and she said, but I wasn't here last night. This is all I have to go on. <laughs> well, interesting. You know, you talk about James Earl Jones one of the most beautiful voices in all of film and theater. He was a stutterer. Yes. He had a terrible stutter, which he overcame. It's interesting, some of the great actors' voices, uh, F. Murray Abraham is from El Paso, Texas. He had a Tex-Mex accent, but he listened to John Barrymore records and John Gielgud records, and he became F. Murray Abraham. So it's... uh, it's uh, if you have again the the will. The other thing that's so necessary, Richard, and you've seen this, I'm sure, is you really have to hold on. You've got to hold on to the ledge, and most people are going to maybe maybe even step in on your fingers, but you got to hold if you believe in the fact that you want it bad enough. A lot of people want the fame, the money, the power, but they don't they don't have the drive and ambition and stamina to do it. So you you had that in spades, but was there a moment in your career where you felt that you were, or maybe you don't feel it? I don't know uh, where you felt that you were on solid footing in this business. That I was on. I'm sorry, what? Solid footing that you had actually your you had planted your feet that you knew 
that you were exactly where you were meant to be? Yes, I I would say yes. When I when I produced a play called Vida and Virginia with uh, Vanessa Redgrave and Eileen Atkins, um, and it was the second play I had done. I had done a Broadway play uh, called It Had to Be You with Renee Taylor and Joe Bologna. Uh, but that was with Alan Klein, who really was the lead producer. In Vita and Virginia, I took over, even though there was a much more famous producer, but he lived in London. So I took over in America, and I, and I could not raise all the money. Uh, so I did what you should never do as a producer. I put in my own money uh, and was having sleepless nights before we opened. Uh, when that opened and it became the highest grossing off-Broadway play in the history of New York, I thought, well, okay, maybe I've been, <laughs> I've been, I've been in the movies business so long and television, maybe theater, which I love, is where I really belong. And I then opened, within a few uh, weeks of that, uh, or a month or so, uh, Death Defying Acts, three one-act plays. Yes with David Mamet, who wrote David Mamet, Elaine May, and Woody Allen wrote. And that became the highest grossing of all time. And and that's when I thought, hey, I have something going for me. I, I think I can do this. Immediately, I had three flops in a row. That was the time. Looking back, do you feel that you pursued most of these projects or did they pursue you? I pursued almost all of them. Almost all of them. I, I really did. That was the one thing that I've always been pleased about when something has been a success. Oh, sure, there's the, the, the money and, you know, it's nice for a while and people think you know more than you know. Uh, but what was exciting about it was to know that if I wasn't around, this might have never happened. This probably never would have happened. And that was a very, that is gratifying and continues to be. Um, the last few plays I've done, even during the pandemic, uh, were brought to me. Uh, I have not done that. And, uh, but I think, I, I think you can have a certain amount of energy only. And so I put that into the books now. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll be going back to do some theater. We'll talk about Steve uh, and the play later, but that, that's, um, that's the one play that I have recently produced that we've been very successful with. How do you decide on a project that you're going to throw yourself into? I, I, you you want to fall in love. You just want to feel you love. You want to say, I want to see this on stage, you, or I want to see this on film. Or I want to see it on television. I, I want this. This this either speaks to me or I really care about this subject. Or it's a terrific, terrific characters. Oh, my God, it's so character-driven. And you want to see that. I don't necessarily look what actors look for, which is the arc to see how their arc, how their play will, how their role will go. But I do want to hear the story. I, I love stories, and I look for something that, is intriguing and hopefully intelligent. Frank Gilroy wrote uh, The Subject Was Roses, yeah. and he won the Pulitzer for that. And he said something very funny to me. He said, on your tombstone, it's going to say, quality was his undoing. <laughs> I, I thought, that's pretty, that's pretty good. 
what was it about uh, Tales from the Gutenberg Bible that you said, yes, I want to get involved in this project? Besides, obviously, the star, who we all love. But what was the... As Steve will tell you, Richard, it was my idea. He wrote a book called The Gutenberg Bible. I... We, he had done a play for me on Broadway, uh, Woody Allen play, one of three one acts called Part of Relatively Speaking. And he gave me the book. I read the book and I called him and said, you know, I think this would make a wonderful play. Would you take a chance and write it? He said, well, I don't, I never written a play. I said, well, I've worked on many of them and we can work on it together. And he, I said, but just write 30 pages. And he wrote 30 pages. And I think you had David Saint on last yes, week. I did. And I called David because we'd worked together on many plays that I've done at the George Street. I said, what do you think of this uh, idea of uh, Steve Gutenberg and his story? He said, I don't know much about it. I said, let me send you the 30 pages. Well, he loved it. And once he loved it, the three of us then worked with Steve uh, to take a, a, a rather very long manuscript down to a short one. and uh, But I always thought it would be a wonderful play because his story is such an incredible story, which I don't want to give away because wow. you'll have 30 minutes to do that later. Uh, well, you're going to stick around, aren't you? You don't need to leave unless you want to. You can stay oh, I'd around. love to stay, but I'll be a backseat driver. Yeah, that's fine. Um, so before we bring uh, Steve on... Um, Who's I, would you do consider a one-man show based on your books? I've been asked to do it. I don't know if I want to do it eight times a week, Richard. I, I, I don't I don't think I I would. And also, I mean, I'm not a name. I mean, it's not. I mean, in show business, maybe a little bit of a name, but for the public, I'm zero. I mean, I have I had my own radio show, but it was literally forty some odd years ago on WMCA and then on WOR, but. But you're no. wonderful at it. So I, I want to give just a glimpse. I mean, the show is uh, about to open at the Bay Street Theater, uh, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But here's a little uh, promo, and we'll meet Steve on the other side of this. Great. And here he is, Steve. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, Skipper. Hi, Giuliano. Hi, Steve Marino. Good to see you. Oh, it's great to see you, too. My it's God, great. you look like you're ready to go into Jack LaLanne uh, land. <laughs> well, I, I got here at uh, 5 in the morning into Manhattan, and uh, I hit the ground running today. I just put a T-shirt on, and it's soaking wet from walking around and, and getting all the things I need to get done. But um, thanks, Julie. Julian, all this looks real, doesn't it? It looks real. It, it really does. It looks like you could be a, a beefcake man. Yeah, I just got a lot of shots up this morning 
but I, they, they, it's going to go down to I'll be 140 pounds by six o'clock. That's why I'm only from. That's why I'm only from the neck up, Steve. <laughs> so who's the doctor, Steve? <laughs> who's the doctor? I want to go to him. It's uh. What, do you remember the famous Doctor Arnold Klein? He was the he was the famous Beverly Hills guy. Yes. And I thought Doctor Feelgood. Doctor Feelgood. Yes. Yeah. So Steve, um, Julian and I were talking about this amazing book. Uh, have you had a chance to read the entire book? Julian's book? Oh, yeah, of course. And I love it. You know, it's so important to be able to have stories that define um, a profession. And many professions, I believe that the, the real education is in the verbal discussion of what it's like to be a doctor, a plumber a lawyer, a producer, you can't, a lot of it, you can, the technical part, you can learn from a book. What is a budget? How much are you going to use on wardrobe and hair? How much are you going to you know, spend on a set, etc.? But Julian's stories are educational and entertaining in the sense that they tell you what it's really like to be on the ground, to have the boots on the ground and to be dealing with not only story, plot, writing, but personalities and the, um, the nuances of getting things done. Um, and Julian, and, I, and it's no secret, everyone knows this, Julian's a really special person. Mm -hmm. Julian has integrity, character. He is a loyal person. He's very, very well-educated very, very well um, 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 versed in theater, movies, television. He's done it all. But also Julian is a good person. And that's why he's had such a long career because you can count on Julian. His word is the real thing. And it's very, very rare in a person, in any, in any profession. Well, Steve, based on everyone that I've heard from, the same could be said about you. That's right. Let's 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 let let's let that be be said, especially in his profession as an actor. When an actor because an actor has often been kicked around, lied to, and they're often damaged goods by the time they have success. Steve has never ever ever that I've never seen a bad sign. He's just a talented, kind, loving man. And uh, sure, it sounds like we'll be picking out the furniture together, but the truth <laughs> is. <laughs> No, none of that, none of that Scandinavian stuff again. Okay, no. okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'll never stop getting put down for that Scandinavian stuff. <laughs> but, but it's true, Richard, and you've seen it too in your career, I'm sure. Oh, yes. Where, you know, the old Abbott and Costello, slowly I turned. All of a sudden, you know. Niagara, Niagara, Niagara. Yeah, yeah right. So... Uh, but Stevie, your story, I mean, first of all, let's go back to your book. Um, to tell your life story and to put it uh, on paper, I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked Julian before. Um, how do you decide what stories you're going to tell and what you're going to leave for yourself that are just, you know, solely your stories? Um, because obviously you want a book that's going to sell and that did. Uh, and then 
to go a step further and to tell your story night after night on stage is a completely different level. Uh, what was the impetus for you originally to write your book? Well, you know, I've been telling these stories for so many years and um, I was, my dad said to me, this is, I don't know, 30 years ago, he said, you know, these stories are really funny and very unique. And one of these days, my dad and I would have all kinds of good conversations and um, at, at, the, at, the, at the kitchen table. And uh, my mother would say, ah, nobody wants to hear his bullshit. And, 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 and you know, she was, she, was, she was half real and half not real. Um, oh, am I in your way? Okay. Um, I'm, I was getting a haircut, you know, oh, trying to get everything done in one day. Sorry. Um, while we're doing the show, that'll be a whole... Yeah, no, that, that would be incredible. No. So um, my dad said to me, you know, one of these days you should write those down into a book. All right. Anyway, I was with some agent at William Morris. Um, we were just, we were talking and I was telling some funny stories and he said, I think this is a book. And that's how it, it came about. So then they got a publisher and uh, uh, Macmillan and, um, and, and we published it. But I think we all have our own story and we all think, you know, everyone, whether you're the street sweeper or the CEO of IBM, you have a story about how you became who you are. Um, but I, uh, I, I found that I got very, very fortunate. Julian came to me and said, I think this is a play, like he just said. And, you know, I got really lucky because Julian is one of the masters you know, he's Nolan Ryan, you know, he's, he's, he's one of the greatest pitchers in, in the, in the game. So when you have one of the greatest pitchers in the game says, you know what? I think you can hit. I really think you can hit. I, I'm going to throw a fastball at you and let's see if you can hit it. Boom. You can hit it. And he says, try this out. So I, I, I think it was about 300 pages I sent to Julian and they're all kind of good stories, right? Like one story is, uh, Oh, I had a tuna fish sandwich and, uh, and, and I found a, a diamond ring inside the tuna fish sandwich. Oh, that's a funny story. And another story is, oh, I was uh, riding a camel and the camel broke down and an elephant came along. So then Julian says, well, which story should, is better for us, the tuna fish sandwich or the elephant and the camel story? So then you say, okay, you, you pick it. You tell me what you think you should do. So then it goes back and forth. So 300 pages, as you say, become 68 pages because it's, although I do think it's as good as Nicholas Nickleby, I do, <laughs> I do, <laughs> but it, it's not good. as long, but not as long, not as long. <laughs> but I, I, I want to ask you, I mean, whose choice was it to bring the other actors into the show. I mean, because there's a tendency uh, when someone's going to put their story on stage that it becomes a one man or one woman show. And that's not the choice with you. It was the greatest idea is Julian. Julian said, no, I think it's gonna be too much for you to do. And it's lonely on the road doing a one man show. And, but he, he's, 
he came up with this really great concept that, and I think this is a really cool concept and I've seen it in movies where someone breaks the fourth wall, they're in the scene, you know, Woody Allen would do it. You turn and you go, let me tell you something about my mother, you know? And um, Julian said, let's have some other actors play all the other roles. You'll be in there. And then you'll turn to the audience and give a, a, a narration, a little bit of a chorus. And it was great. It, it turned out fantastic because I have a really good time with it. I like working with people. I like people. And Julian and David chose really great actors. And moreover, it's a chance for me to be in that time and then turn to the audience and explain what's going on, be myself, then go back to myself at 20 years old. I don't know if I'm explaining it correctly. No, you are. Uh, and it, did you, it was a great, did you, great concept. Did you workshop the show at all before? I know it started out at the George Street Playhouse, um, but when you went into the rehearsal process with the other actors, uh, had you workshopped this at all or was it happening on its feet? No, is that right, Julian? We didn't, that, that was the first time we did it, right? Absolutely. Just the rehearsal, just the rehearsal. But Steve took, took it to, I mean, he took to it like a duck to water. It was so wonderful to see him immediately. See, he came prepared. I mean, to say he came prepared, I'm not used to uh, the leading actor knowing all their lines before they walk <laughs> in the door. In fact, I have had actors who at the end of the play, after I ran it six months, still didn't know all their lines. Oh, that's true. That's but true. Steve knew it right from the get-go, and which which helped the other actors because they they realized there was one particular that realized he better learn it. <laughs> he better learn it. He wasn't going to just walk uh, and kind of do it by uh, uh, increment, and that and that met, met, makes it much easier uh, for the director too. But for David. And David Saint is a very creative director. Yeah, absolutely. He, he, and, and you spoke with him last week, and you know that, I mean, he, he, he kept that show moving. It's a, really a moving show, and we have an incredibly inventive set, which we will not give away, Steve. We, maybe, maybe at the end of the run we'll give it away. But David already gave it away. So, but I'm hoping to get there. I'm, uh, you know, when I get back, uh, I'm going on a trip. I'm hoping to get to the Bay Street Theater to see, which is a great theater. Have you played there before, Steve? No, no, I've, I've never been there. I've never seen a show there. This will be my first time. Well, how does it feel to be coming home to Long Island to, uh, to be? It's, it's, it's a mind blowing. It's so wonderful. You know, I'm the luckiest guy in the world because every night, I'm going to have some friends there. You know, let's say you, I, up, I was doing the show in Chicago or Minneapolis or someplace. You know, I wouldn't have that many people I know come to the show. But I'm going to have my tribe coming to the show every night. Somebody is going to be there that I know that I went to high school with or went to college with or know from the neighborhood. Or I even I used to clam and crab um, on, the, on the North Fork and in the South Bay. At three in the morning, I'd, I'd bring a, a crab trap on my bicycle. I'd throw it in there and a couple of friends. I'm going to have friends from when I was seven years old, when I was 12 years old. I'm going to have some of the caddies. I was a caddy at Bethpage uh, Black uh, uh, Golf Course. Some of the caddies are going to come there. Some of the guys that I, uh, I was a newspaper. I was a Newsday carrier. 
I'm going to have a couple of guys. I know Russell Remondino and a few other of those guys are going to come to the show. Um, my teachers from school are going to come there. Wow. Um, and, and, and my first acting teacher, Mr. Kirby, he passed away. His wife, Barbara, is going to come to the show. So it's going to be one of the things that's so, so exciting. Yeah. One of the things that's so great about the show, Richard, is the fact that Steve takes you from his neighborhood, from his parents, and having wonderful, loving parents, to, to, to it becomes, I always used to say, it's Alice in Wonderland. No, it's Steve in Wonderland. He flies to Los Angeles and decides with nobody, he doesn't know anyone really, except his parents' friend, to become a movie star. And he well, does I, I want to go back to that. Uh, 17 years old, your parents give them money, you go to Hollywood, uh, you only really knew one person there, am I correct? Correct. Yeah. And how did things just begin to unfold? Everybody come see the show to find out. Uh, but <laughs> there are a couple of things that I want to talk about in you know before we run out of time. Uh, one, and God bless you, and uh, you came back recently, uh, not too long ago, uh, to be a caretaker uh, for your father. And uh, you address this in the show as well. Um, was that difficult to relive this on stage? Uh, or are there things that you're finding out about yourself as a result of putting that in front of an audience? The part where I do talk about my dad when uh, I was caretaking him with my sister and my mom and my other sister once in a while. Yeah, really difficult. It really is very difficult. I, I'm sure I know that Julian's gone through it. I'm sure you've gone through it. When you look in someone's eyes that and you see them start to wither a little bit every day. Um, and so, you know, uh, most people, it goes away. and You just don't ever you think about it once in a while. Maybe on the anniversary, is light a Yachtsafe candle. But and once in a while, it comes in your mind. But it comes in my mind every night. But it's a it's wonderful because I get to be with my father every night. I get to hug him twice. You know, Arnie, Arnie uh, Burton, who played my dad, I think he said to me one time, you don't want to let me go when you hug me, do you? I go, no, I don't. Um, because it's my dad. And it, but it's really, um, you know, my dad suffered so much. And so, yeah, that one part kind of gets me. Yeah, it does. It gets me. Sure. It must be very cathartic to go through that. Now, on a lighter note, um, and again, I don't want to give away any spoilers, uh, but David alluded to this the last time we spoke, and I hope that you'll take us there. Uh, can't stop the music. Can't stop the music. <laughs> well, it was a great experience for me. I didn't know anything. And I went in for an audition, and Alan Carr was a very famous, successful producer. Uh, and I got the part. And the village people, my God, to me, they were big, big music stars and Valerie Perrine and, uh, and Bruce Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner now. Jenner. Man, I was just, I was 20 years old and I was so lucky. I was, and I, I met Olivia Newton-John and, and, and Jane Fonda visited the set. And Nancy and, Walker. Nancy and Nancy Walker. Walker directed and Bill Butler, the great cinematographer. You know, it was so much fun. It was so much fun for me. I met all these interesting people. And, you know, I, I was a regular guy in an extraordinary situation. And 
Oh, it was great. It was just great. But you've got a, uh, we won't give any spoilers, but a uh, very funny moment about this is reenacting. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. sure. Um, what was your process uh, when you were writing your book originally? And was it the same process when you're writing uh, a play, a one-man show, or, or a, not a one-man show, but uh, to put your life story on stage? Was the process the same for you, for both? Yeah. You know, I, I, I put a couple of um, places where I'm supposed to make a left or a right. So I put about 10 or 12 of them. And then I just drive and then I just write till I get to that turn and I go, okay, you got to turn this way now. And then I turn that way. And um, I was lucky because of Julian and, and David, um, you know, Julian said, just write, just write everything you can and we'll go through it. You know, I got to tell you, Julian, you know, that is just so generous of you. And so wonderful of you to go, don't worry, I'll read everything. I'll do all the work. I'll put all the hours in. You just write. I mean, there's very few guys who say, you know, cook a thousand pounds of food. I'll go through it and I'll find the five good pounds. You know, there's not a lot of guys who'll do it. A lot of guys go, just give me 10 pounds. I'm not going to do all that work. And Julian and, and David did all that work. So I had um, a lot of freedom. Just write. Don't worry about making mistakes. You know, Julian is brilliant in grammar and punctuation and, and you know, and, and was able to, you know, direct me obviously in those places too, but just said, just go, just, just cook, cook a thousand pounds worth of food. I'll find the good five pounds. Don't worry. Wow. Pretty cool. But, you, but you're a natural storyteller. You, you have great stories. And, the, the, you know, when you think about Richard uh, Stevens' career, I mean, he's been in some of the biggest movies ever. And as a producer, if you look back, you think, holy cow, he not only makes the movie, they make sequels of his movies. That's right, that's right. <laughs> I mean, he does Cocoon, there's a second Cocoon. He does Three Men and a Baby, another one. Police Academy, Police I will not yeah. the movies. I mean, <laughs> come on. You, 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 you hire this guy, you got a sequel before you begin. <laughs> one of the things that Please. I'm loving hearing both of you talk about, uh, which is something that's important to me in this business, is the collaborative process. Um, having the right team of people coming together. It's like baking a, you know, a cake or something, getting all the right ingredients together. Um, Steve, if you can talk, you know, uh, uh, because my show is all about celebrating celebrating those times in your career where the collaborative process was just alchemy coming together to make it work? Well, I learned one thing. The biggest guys, the biggest, they ask questions. What do you think? What do you think? And then the guy who's changing a light bulb says, you know, I think maybe instead of an uh, it should be a the. And you know what? The smartest guys go, Wow, the guy! I think that's a good idea. And somebody goes, "That guy changes light bulbs. He doesn't know anything." He goes, "No, no, 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 no. That's a good idea." I learned, and that's how people want to work with you. When you're open, when you you go, "Oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea." You know, um, you take your ego out of it. You put your brains in there. So I, I've seen. That's what I saw, and I always see it. Wh whether it's an architect, whether it's a landscaper, a plumber. A doctor, you know, someone comes up with a good idea. I think you should do this. They listen. The smartest guys listen. They listen. And Steve, looking back over your career, 
Julian, do, oh, just get, oh, sorry, Skip. Yes, go ahead. Julian, you, you, do you find that too? Yeah, I used to have a philosophy that I said, I don't care who helps Schlossberg. Right. Right <laughs> on, baby. Right on. Because, because when you go through that, when you cross that finish line first, you're first. Yeah. You know, you know, you know or, or that guy made the sneakers, that guy made his shorts, but you got there first. That's, That's it. Right. And there are some great uh, lessons that you give us, Julian, from your mom, things that your mom would say to you in terms, I mean, these phrases are, you know, should be on bumper stickers, some of them. It's true. And she almost put me on my bumper sticker half the time. <laughs> but my father gave me the, the best one, the funniest one. He said, if at first you don't succeed, forget it. <laughs> and there were two moments, and you, you, you write about this in your book, where you didn't really listen to him. That's true. That's true. No, no it's it's. Uh, you ever decided to play punch ball? Call me up, and we'll go and play together. <laughs> well, we just have a few moments left, uh, Steve. You know, what do you feel um, looking at your career? And I ask this for all the artists out there who are watching, who want to go into this business, and it's a tough business. Without naming names, what was the most difficult period career-wise that you felt that you went through, excluding your personal life, but your career? And what got you through that? What was your fortitude that got you to the other side? Whenever you're on a project that you think is not going well, or you're working with difficult people, I always leaned on what I learned at my parents' kitchen table. You just keep going. You just keep going. You don't quit. You keep going. And you try your best every time. And it'll all work out. And I think that I've had a, a lot of moments where I thought this project is a turkey or the people are very difficult. But, you know, you make a commitment and you see it through and you smile and you be a good person and you be nice and you control yourself. My father would always say, control yourself, control yourself. So that's, you know, that's what I think you do in the, in the difficult parts of any time of your life. You know, you, you try your best and you control yourself. Well, Steve, I want to say something. Um, a couple of weeks ago when we had David on and uh, you weren't able to get here, but you picked up the phone and you called me. And you apologized and you said, I'm going to make it up to you. So I really appreciate the fact that you did that, number one. Because thank, you people, for be, thank you for being so gracious. Absolutely. People don't do that in this business a lot of times. Um, the fact that you picked up the phone to call me and that you made it happen by being here. Uh, I think the world of both of you. I've been a, such a fan of your work for so long. And uh, I can't wait to see your show uh, next month. You're going to be at the Bay Street Theater through the 20th of August. Correct. Yes, and uh, and all the details will be on my YouTube channel. I'm going to give each of you a chance to have your final word today. Uh, I'm going to give my final word, and then you can flip a coin to see who will go first. Uh, but, uh, you know, it could be about anything that we spoke about today that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't speak about uh, that you wish that we had, or just any final word uh, that we you want to leave everyone with today. And then you'll turn it over to the next person. When you say goodbye, the final credits will roll. Uh, I want to thank everyone for being here. I know I can speak for both Julian and Steve when I say this. When you show up, we don't take it lightly. 
It means a lot when you take the time. Go see a live show. Go to the Bay Street Theater. Uh, do you have other cities, by the way, planned on this? We're on our way. We're actually going to be announcing something in September. Yes, we're going to right. have a, we're right. going to have a tour. Uh, yes, uh, I, I just want to thank you, Richard, for your support and the fact I've done a lot of interviews. You're prepared. You ask intelligent questions. Yeah. It's uh, not that common. One would think, but every uh, Tom, Dick, and Harriet seem <laughs> seem to be doing podcasts. It's nice. That's true. That's when true. they say, you know, what is your book about? You get a little nervous. And I answer about 350 pages. <laughs> and like Desi Arnaz says, it's a book. So, uh, but anyway, I, um, I want to end, uh, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Uh, pick up the phone and call someone today that you have not spoken to in a long time and let them know how they've made a difference in your life. And trust me, you'll make a difference in their life. I have a dear friend. He says, we're all in this together, but we're in a, a different size boat. And I say, I don't care what size boat you're on as long as you have a skipper by your side. And with that, I'm going to leave the screen and you can decide who's going to go first. It's I'm, up to you guys. I'm, I'm giving it to the star. That's you. No, no, that's oh, you. Wait a minute. Oh, gee, I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> you know. I think that you, you said something, Skipper, which is very important. And I, I, I think about it a lot. And I got that advice. Just show up. Go to the party. You don't have to be the most interesting person at the party. Just show up. Show up to the baseball game. Call up somebody you like. Just show up. You don't have to be interesting. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous. But I find if you show up, that's like 80% of it. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to be good in this. Show up. I don't know if I'm going to be able to read this book. Read the book. Just show up. And when you get out of bed and you go in the shower and you put on your clothes and you go to the party, just by showing up, you're doing so much. So that's what I'm trying to do in my life. Just show up and and be my best. Be my be my kindest. Be my nicest. Be be thoughtful, try to understand the other person. And I'm not perfect. I'm going to fall a lot of times. But uh, just try to be my best and show up. Okay, the credits are going to roll, I think. And uh, again, Richard, thank you for giving us uh, a wonderful show. Enjoy doing it.